Afghanistan just took over the top spot in the world for the country that deals the harshest with Christians within it. It is the harshest persecutor of Christians in the world. They've gotten, things have gotten so intense since the Taliban has returned to power that between Christians fleeing and Christians dying, there may soon not be any Christians left in Afghanistan. They took over this honor from North Korea. North Korea had long been the top spot for Christian persecution around the world. And though they've lost their top spot, the harshness of persecution has actually increased. For the privilege of being a Christian in North Korea, you and your family get rounded up and sent to a hard labor camp where you basically become slaves or you're killed on the spot. The same happens in Afghanistan. Generally, men are killed on the spot and women are either sent to prison or into slavery. Somalia holds a third spot in this honorable list for owning biblical material, scripture, or anything associated with Christianity. Your family will turn you into authorities who will gladly kill you. Lindsay and I are part of a prayer WhatsApp group for Africa. And this Thursday, just three or four days ago, we heard of a young lady, we'll call her Sarah, a Somali young lady who had an audio Bible and her family found it. And her family were about to turn her into the authorities. She escaped and she is in a safe house where she is trying to figure out what to do next with her life. She has lost everything for the privilege of following Christ. These are our brothers and sisters. And this is the reality of the cost they've had to count. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer for this message and for Sarah and men and women like Sarah around the world today? Lord God, I praise you for your word. I praise you for the way you always accomplish what you set out to do through your word, it never returns vain. We praise you for your, how your word encourages us when times are dark, for how it challenges us when we are glib, for how it builds us up and equips us and brings us into maturity in the church. And Father, I pray this morning, despite my great inadequacy and my many shortcomings, that you would anoint my mouth through your spirit as I seek to expound your word, and begin looking at how it applies into our lives today. I pray that you would bless me, that I would speak clearly. I pray that you would bless every heart and ear that listens, that your word would sink deep, that we would not just be hearers, but we would be doers of your word, that would we, be, we would be transformed and shaped by your word. Father, I pray that you would equip us, that you would continue to hone us and shape us, that you would bring us into maturity. I pray that you would give us perspective. I pray that you would encourage us. And I pray that you would show us again the cost and the call that you place on our lives. Above all, Lord, I pray that the name of Jesus would be lifted high, that your name would be glorified. Father, I think of people like Sarah and 
thousands, tens of thousands around the world like her this morning who are having to count the cost and are feeling it for the privilege of knowing you. Oh Lord, I pray that you would be with these brothers and sisters. I pray that you would strengthen them. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you would build them up and build up their faith. And Lord, as you call them, like seeds to fall to the ground and die in a myriad ways as you call us to the same that we may bear fruit lord i pray that you would through our lives through their lives through our faithfulness through their faithfulness that you would cause much fruit to spring up for your kingdom and to your glory because you are worthy and you are worth it amen Over the last two and a half centuries, church, we in the Western world have lived through a little bit of an anomaly. We've lived through a season of great peace, of blending in or even influencing culture in major ways. But the fact is that through much of church history, that has not been the case. To cling to God's word, to cling to convictions of scripture, and to be faithful... Men and women have been called to count the cost, and sometimes the cost has been great, and at times the cost has been everything. And this is still the case around the world today. The British historian John Fox wrote a book for us. Uh, I highly recommend this book if you're in tall, at all into history, or if you just want to be encouraged. It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It was written 500 years ago and looked at the first 1500 years of Christianity and how many people were called to pay that cost and the courage and the joy in which they went. There is a brother who is alive today named Nick Ripkin who has written a similar book about the state of the church today. It's called The Insanity of God. I highly recommend that book as well. And there's a movie made by it if you're not a reader, about it if you're not a reader. It will encourage you. There are organizations today like the Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors that advocate for the church that is suffering, for the church that lives under persecution, and try to drum up prayer to increase and to mobilize prayer for those who are suffering. I highly recommend that you check out these organizations, the Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors. What they tell us is that persecution today is at its highest level in decades, with 360 million Christians across 76 uh, countries suffering high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith. That's around one in seven Christians. How many multiples of seven do we see here in this room? We know Nadala, our brother, but most of us have never experienced this. Our text this morning is in Joel 3. As we finish our, the book of Joel, our series on the book of Joel, it would be helpful for you to turn to Joel 3, please. And this text belongs to a genre of scripture called the apocalyptic. Just like there's narrative, and there's poetry, and there's parable, and there's prophecy, there's a genre in scripture called apocalypse. Last week, we looked at the mystery of God's plan. And that word mystery comes from a Greek word mean, meaning hidden. And apocalypse comes from a word that means the opposite. It means revealed. 
Often these texts, like the book of Revelation, are written in the midst of terrible suffering and persecution, like the Roman persecution of the early church. There are little glimpses of God, a little vision of his future plan, showing us that things will turn out well in the end, that God is still on his throne, that he is still in charge, that he has a plan for his people and he is working it out, even when it seems that hope may be foolish, even when things are so dark, that it appears there is no light at the end of the tunnel, no silver lining on the clouds. God is still working out his plan. These texts, these passages, these books help us to hang on and trust. And in times of intense persecution, the church has been overwhelmingly encouraged by these reminders. Our society has been steadily moving away from a biblical perspective Who knows where we'll be in five years, or ten years, or thirty years. The promises of Joel Joel 3 help give us perspective, church. They remind us of truths that are important for all Christians at all times. But these are foundational truths that have been sources of life for the church when it has suffered the most for clinging to Christ. They're foundational truths that help us cut through the lies that society spins and sometimes we are tempted to believe and to see clearly what is most true, what is ultimate, to cling to truth and to hold on to hope. But before we get there, I want to highlight a couple of things about prophecy in general that would be helpful for us in looking at this text. Our culture, when we think about prophecy thinks of predicting the future or just predictions in general, knowing what's going to happen before it happens. That's not how the Old Testament deals with prophecy or views prophecy. In the Old Testament, prophets are men, sometimes women, who hear messages or who have or who have been given messages from God for his people. The word of the Lord to strengthen, to encourage, to call to repentance, to call to account. Usually... These passages are calling God's people to repentance. They're they're pointing out God's people's sin and unfaithfulness. And they're calling God's people to ask God for mercy, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in Joel 1 and the first half of Joel 2. Usually, these these passages, this ministry is confrontational to God's people. Often, these texts point to hope especially when they're dealing with Israel. They point to God's promise to hang on to his people, to restore his people, as we saw last week uh, in the second half of Joel chapter 2. And sometimes these texts point to events that will happen in the future. Mostly those events are related to the coming Messiah and and the new covenant that God would make with his people Texts pointing to those are littered, are planted throughout Scripture from Genesis to Malachi, throughout the Old Testament. And they point to a Messiah who will come. They point to hope for God's people. They point to the restoration that God is working among His people and in the world. A few times, these texts include apocalypse. A revelation of the end of the world. A revelation of the culmination of all God's plans and the end of all things that he is working, of the perfect restoration that he will work, of the perfect perfect justice 
that he will bring about. So prophecy is not just prediction. Prophecy is God's message to his people. But that last one, apocalypse, is what we see in Joel chapter 3 today. The second aspect of prophecy I'd like to point out to us is this weird phenomenon where prophets seem to lack depth perspective. There is a timeline of future events, but they get flattened like a pancake. Do you remember depth perspective? We learn about this in school. God created us with binocular vision, bi meaning two and ocular meaning eyes. By having two eyes on the same side of our head, we can see and we can triangulate and we have perspective so we see how far things are. We have depth perspective. So we're not running into walls and we aren't tripping over stairs. We know how far people are or how close people are. Apparently, if you lose an eye or if you close an eye, you lose depth perspective, which is why pirates are always running into walls. Prophets, like pirates, seem to lose depth perspective in, in their predictions when they predict. It, th things are flattened out. They're just flattening of the timeline. And they might not realize that some things might be two years away, like Babylonian captivity. And some things might be 600 years away, like the coming Messiah. And some things might be thousands of years away, like the events we see in Joel 3 that haven't happened yet. And so, for example, in Joel, we've looked at this concept of the day of the Lord, a day of reckoning, when God's judgment arrives and all who reject, all those who reject and disobey Him are held to account. Our big idea this morning is the day of the Lord is coming. This is a common theme through the minor prophets. In the beginning of Joel, we saw that the day was imminent. In Joel 1, this, this, this reckoning is right upon them. And then in the beginning of Joel 2, or sorry, in the middle of Joel 2 in verse 18, we read, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. But if Joel is talking about exile, this doesn't happen for decades, yet it seems to happen immediately. And then in the next, a few verses later in verse 28, it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And we don't know how long afterward it is. Is it a few days? Is it a few weeks? Actually, this happens at the time of Christ hundreds of years after the events of this text. And we see the same in chapter 3. For behold, in those days, but these events are not taking place at the same time as what happened at the end of Joel 2. In verse 14 of chapter 3, it talks about the day of the Lord again. And it says it's imminent, it's near. But these events still haven't taken place and it's been 2,000 years since the time of Christ. There's this flattening of the prophetic timeline. It's like prophets were seeing everything on the horizon and they can't quite distinguish how far the tree is from the hills behind the tree to these ginormous mountains who are way far away but look so large. They just see everything flattened. It's really helpful to keep these two things in mind as we read through our text this morning. So without further ado, church, and there's already been a lot of ado. Would you look at me um, to our text in Joel 3? We get to our first point this morning, which is the day of the Lord is coming and God will be vindicated. Our text this morning points to a future event, a final day of the Lord, a day of absolute reckoning where everyone who's ever lived will stand before the throne of God and give account. The day of the Lord is coming 
and God will be vindicated. We see this in verses 1 to 16. Would you read with me, please, verses 1 to 16, or look at me as I read verses 1 to 16. For behold, in those days, and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, again, as we saw, this is a flattening of the prophetic timeline. This doesn't happen at the same time as the end of chapter 2, but it still calls it those days and that time. When I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head and swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. A couple of points here, church. First, Tyre and Sidon are not the major superpowers of the day. Philistia was a, an old enemy that wasn't particularly strong. God is speaking about the nations here. We see this early in our text. We see, we'll see this again. These are just general reference to the nations around Jerusalem. Nations that have opposed them. Nations that have opposed God's plan. Nations that have mistreated God's people. Right from the beginning of Scripture, from Genesis chapter 4, we see in Genesis 3 that there's this access to God that is lost because of Adam and Eve's sin. And in Genesis 4 we see that God has already made a way for sinful, broken, fallen men to walk with him. And so we see some, like Abel, who take him up on this, who walk with God, who live in a manner pleasing to God and are faithful to their maker. And we see others, like Abel's brother Cain, who resent that. And so Abel suffers and dies at Cain's hand. And through history, through the history of the world, this has been repeated and multiplied and continued. There are those who, seeing God's ways, are drawn to him. There are those who, seeing God's grace and God's beauty, are drawn to him and are drawn to living lives of faithfulness to him as brokenly, as, as sinfully as they are able by his grace, as they are enabled by his grace. And there are those who have hardened their hearts, who have decided to go their own way, who have opposed the plans of God and who have opposed God's people. This is history, and this is the history of Israel, and this is still repeated today as we see with Sarah. And what this text is saying is that those who choose evil, those who choose to reject God, who, to harden themselves and to harden their heart, there will come a day when they will be brought before God and they will give account. All of us will give account. They will give account. Let's read on in verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let the men of war draw near. Let them come up. 
Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hook into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. In other words, all are being summoned, warriors and non-warriors, men and women, weak and strong. We go wider here to include all the nations. Yahweh is calling all people to stand before him and give account. And that day is coming soon. Let's read on. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. They may come with swords and with spears. They may come for war because they're coming, uh, being dragged into this. But God is not there for war. There is no contest here. God is seated. God is in control. God is in charge. And God will judge. Verse 13. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. The winepress here, church, is God's wrath. His intense hatred of sin. And the symbolism is that God's enemies have accrued such a debt of sin, of evil, of, of injustice, of, of disobedience against God. That he is holding them to account. He is judging them. He is a sickle and he is ready to cut them down. He has put them into a wine, pre vine, a wine press and he is about to stomp them into juice. The day of Yahweh is coming and God will be vindicated against all evil. Let's read on in verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withhold their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people a stronghold to the people of Israel. Like passages in Isaiah, like passages in Revelation, church, this passage is talking about a final day of the Lord. A day when all nations, when all people, when everyone who's ever lived, including you and me, will stand before the throne of God and will give account for all our actions, all our evil, all our injustice, all that we have done. The darkening of the sun and moon has less to do with the weather and more to do with the presence of God. Figuratively, this is a dark day because judgment is coming upon all mankind. But actually, the presence of God obscures these other luminaries. In the glorious radiance of God's holy presence, even the sun and the moon are darkened. We saw last week that at the core of God's character, He is holy he is holy and the standard God demands from you and me, from his creation is purity, is holiness. Living up to that standard is what he desires. And he cannot remain true to the holiness of his character and allow our sin to remain unpunished any more than a good and non-corrupt judge could allow evildoers to remain unpunished. Justice demands punishment. But right from the beginning of mankind, God has made a way for mankind, unable to meet that standard, to 
walk with him. We have questioned his goodness and his plan. We have gone our own way and disregarded him. We have missed the mark. We have fallen. We have fallen short of the purposes he created us for. And all through history, God has been gracious. He always made a way for us to draw near to him. Every dealing of God with mankind has been marked by grace. And some, like Abel and Enoch, like Noah and Abraham and Moses and on and on, all the way to some who are seated in this room today, have seen his goodness and have seen that grace and have been drawn to him by that. We have tried to live lives in his, in humility, in obedience, in faithfulness, to live before him. And there are others who have hardened their heart and who have straight out rejected him, at times even attacking those who have fallen him, like Cain, or the people of Noah's day, or the people of Sodom and Gomorrah in Lot's day, and on and on through the time of Christ, those who crucified him, and on and on to those who are trying to kill Sarah today, and thousands others like her. For those of us in Christ, sin was dealt with on the cross. Sin was accounted for. But for those who reject God, sin has, their sin has not yet been accounted for, but it will. What Scripture teaches us is that a final, definitive day of the Lord is coming, a day of wrath for those who reject God, a day when justice will be served. And we today take several lessons from this truth, church. The first, and this is worth noting, is that God and his people have always had enemies. Scripture drives a wedge between love for God and love for the world. Not meaning the physical earth. Not meaning even the people of the world. Remember John 3.16, God so loved the world. Scripture is talking about the people of the world. But there is a different way that Scripture also refers to the world. It's talking about the socioeconomic political structures that rule and shape human civilization. Scripture refers to these as often being corrupt, generally be rejecting God. And all through the New Testament, we see that they are ruled, in fact, by Satan. And in this sense, God's people have often been rejected by the world. And it's likely that rejection will increase in our context as well. And for people who have lived this rejection, who have paid that cost, who have tasted of this pain, the truth of passages like this is tremendous consolation God's enemies will give an account all injustice all corruption all evil will be done away with another consequence of the sin of this sorry this truth is that we will not find perfect justice in this world that doesn't mean we shouldn't be just that shouldn't mean that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive for justice we are called to be salt and light we are called to shine as lights in the midst of the darkness. But ultimately, the only day we will see true justice is on this day, the day of the Lord. Justice is coming. Evil will be repaid. God will be vindicated, but not yet in his perfect timing. Something worth pointing out here is that though we may have enemies, though God may have his enemies, though God's people have always had enemies, and though we, we may be treated unjustly, unjustly, what Christ and the apostles model for us is meekness in the face of injustice, turning the other cheek, blessing when we are cursed, 
We are not called to, to work evil upon our enemies. We are called to lay, our, lay down our lives in service to them, in love for them, that we may bring redemption into their lives as Christ has brought redemption into our lives. This is how God's people respond to their enemies until God brings justice to victory. Our first point this morning is the day of the Lord is coming and God will be vindicated. The day described here is one we long for as Christians. This hope has been a tremendous sustenance to God's people to remain faithful to him, to cling to truth, to trust his plan. Judgment is coming and God will be vindicated is our first point this morning. Our second point is the other side of that coin. The day of the Lord is coming and God's people will be rewarded. God will judge the nations and all those who have clung to him in faith will be blessed on that day. The day of the Lord is coming and God's people will be rewarded. We see this in verses 17 to 21. Would you look there with me again? So you shall know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountain shall drip sweet wine and the hill shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of Yahweh and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. Again here, Edom and Egypt are being used generically to represent the nations, to represent governments that have opposed God, that have opposed his plan, that have opposed his people. So we see that this final day is coming when all evil will be brought to justice, when all people will stand before the throne of God and give account. But alongside this, we see an era of prosperity for God's people. We see hills or mountains filled with vineyards. We see hills filled with cattle. We see the land well watered and green and lush remembering that this was an agrarian society that was being written to, they could not imagine a greater picture of blessing and plenty than this. We see Jerusalem and Judah inhabited and thriving, a picture of restoration for God's people, of God's faithfulness and his love for his people. And with the blessing of binocular vision, we can read Isaiah and Revelation and see even more detail just as all evildoers will receive justice, so also all God's people will receive restoration. They will enter into blessedness forever, including the delight of restoration in our relationship with God. Friend, this is what human beings were designed for. We are physical beings, but as we looked at last week, we are we are amphibians. We are also spiritual beings. We live in two worlds and we were created to live in fellowship with God, to live walking with God, enjoying God, glorifying God. This is where true joy comes from. But sin has broken this access and sin has broken this relationship and we cannot thrive until this is restored. Have you ever seen a dog on a vegan diet? 
chances are most likely that a dog on a vegan diet is not a thriving dog because dogs cannot live on carrots. Dogs are carnivores, and for dogs to thrive, they need meat. And for human beings to thrive, for you and me to thrive in joy and purpose, we need God. And what God promised at the cross and accomplished at the cross is the beginning of the restoration of that relationship. And what he accomplishes and finalizes on this day is the culmination, is the fulfillment of the restoration of that relationship. I've spent some time thinking about how I could expound this, explain this in a way that would do it justice, but all my attempts fall short of Scripture. So church, we're going to do something a little different this morning. We are going to gain perspective on Joel 3 by looking at Revelation, parts of Revelation 19 to 22. The day of the Lord is coming and God's people will be rewarded. We're going to see this fleshed out in Revelation. Feel free to follow along. This is the last book in your Bible. The last four chapters in that book. Three chapters in that book. Feel free to follow along or just to listen. I won't be reading every verse, but you should be able to track with me. I'm reading starting at Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, those are crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Remember this battle scene that we see in Joel? This is the same battle scene, but our champion comes to battle pre-bloodied. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Remember we just saw that? On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Jump with me to chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent. Remember the garden? That ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. Jumping again to verse 7, please. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they mar marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Remember, Yahweh doesn't come to this battle in armor. He comes seated on a throne for judgment. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. 
death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first, earth, first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Again, this is prophetic, poetic writing. The sea being no more does not mean you cannot go surfing. The sea in Hebrew thought was often thought of as being chaotic, as being dangerous, as being a place of, of danger and turmoil and, and possible death for God's people. All those things are removed in the new heaven and the new earth. I'm so sorry. The sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. The Lamb is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Word of God, Jesus. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God and its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal, Again, for the sake of time, I'm going to jump to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kind of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, 
and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more, no more darkness. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. The day of the Lord is coming and God's people will be rewarded is our second point. Christian, what goes on in your mind, in your heart, when you read, when you, read, when you hear these things? The Christian life can sometimes feel like a battle, a struggle within us, a struggle between the seen and the unseen. And the seen is everything around us, things that are so solid. We see rocks and trees and skies and seas. We see our families. We see our homes. We see our jobs and our careers. We see our life. We see sunrise and we see sunset. We see life and death every day. And it's so real. This is the water we swim in. This is where we live. They're constant and they're incessant. And then there's the unseen, like God and God's promises. And yet in calling us to live by faith rather than by sight, God calls us to live for the unseen. He calls us to build our lives on his word and his promises. And God's word declares that it's not the seen things, not the things that seem so solid and so real that are ultimate, but that God is ultimate, more ultimate than life and death, more ultimate than the sun and the moon, is God. He created this world and his plan is to redeem it from all the effects of sin. This plan reached its climax at the cross as we saw last week and it reaches its culmination, its completion, its ultimate fulfillment beginning on this day that we look at in Joel 3. When God's people will dwell in the presence of God forever, when all things will be restored and where evil will be done away with forever. Now, this account is poetic and apocalyptic. There is much we don't understand, but about the events themselves, we have absolute confidence because God is never wrong and God never lies. This was the hope of the New Testament church. They clung to this as they were rolled in tar and lit alive, set on fire to light up Nero's garden parties. This has been the hope of men and women who have suffered for Christ through the ages. The hope of God's people for 2,000 years. And when times of persecution have come in losing more and more of what is seen, God's people have been refined into putting more of, and more and more of their hope into, into what is unseen. As they lost everything, this hope was the anchor of their souls. Do you believe this? Is your life built on the surety that this is true? Are we ready for Christ's return? The difference between those who are punished and those who are rewarded is faith in God's promises in Christ. Everything else, everything is of God's grace. But all of us are equally unworthy. All of us are equally evil. It might be a matter of degree between Hitler and I. But before the holiness of God, we both fall equally short. 
Yet God is a refuge for his people. And in Christ, those who, are, who have built their lives on faith in Christ will not suffer as others will who have opposed God's plan just as much as I have inadvertently or not. Are you living a life of faith in Christ, obeying him in the present, engaged in his work for you and in his work in the world? Are you, is Jesus your Savior, your Lord, the love of your life, the driving passion of your heart? God is not looking for half-hearted commitment. He's calling for everything, for men and women who put all our eggs in this one basket, who jump in with both feet. Scripture calls faith the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Each one of us, every day, and certainly for the direction of our lives, must decide who we will serve, whether we will build on faith or whether we will build on the things of this, word, of this world. But know that the day of the Lord is coming. And on that day, as always, only Yahweh is a refuge for His people. Only Yahweh is a stronghold for his people. We must decide where we will build. As for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh.